This is part two of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash paulwheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash paulwheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. We can go back to just, you know, 30 seconds to the the row cropping. Mm. Um, one of the things, so that, you know, there are four production examples. There's the fishers, the, the buffalo ranchers, um, the woman who foraged, uh, and... And then this farm, um, it's a white, white Mountain Apache uh, farm, and they did row cropping. They were the only, the only example that was doing row cropping or in- intensive gardening. Um, and they also had this quote about struggling to... Uh, the, the pressure to increase production to exist in a society where you where you have to sell you have to create you know uh, create surplus um, you know generate profit to exist that as a legitimate entity in our society um, and how in their past as traditional gardeners that wasn't necessary it was just subsistence gardening and so that's that's another thing that kind of came out as maybe a reason for why they're trying to do row cropping or you know they're under this pressure to to actually do commercial production yeah yeah um one of the things that they said at, at one point is that 70% of the food that the world eats is native to the Americas. So I, I kind of so then they, they they started throwing out some of the things, uh, corn and tomatoes, um, chocolate, uh, uh, potatoes, yeah. So chocolate, yeah. Um, there was but they, they they whipped out a list. And I didn't write down the list. No, me but either. I kind of thought. And, and it seems like what they were trying to suggest is like all this food is growing right outside wild right now, and and you just got to go out there and get it. And I kind of thought, uh, no, <laughs> no. And 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 even 500 years ago, a lot of that wasn't at the spot where you're standing. Um, uh, you know, like I think potatoes came from South America. Right. Right. I don't know. I felt more like what they were getting at is that, like, there was sort of this, I don't know, scarcity mindset, for lack of a better word. Like, Mm -hmm. there's nothing here. We can't do anything with this scrub except go to the convenience store. And it's like, I don't know. I think he was more just trying to give them, like, some pride in their culture and history. Like, look... You know, the native people in this incredibly broad region, North and South America and Central (laughs) America, you know, produce 70% of the stuff that we eat. So it's like if you think that all the good stuff comes from, you know, Europe or something, like that's just not reality. Like we live in a rich environment, maybe not this exact square mile of it, but, you know. That's interesting. So I took it in a completely different way from either of you guys. Oh. Um, Okay. So 
he was in the very beginning of the movie this, this quote came out about the 70% and he was giving a presentation at the Stone Barns um, the farm at Stone Barns which is a high-end farm-to-table restaurant um, he's giving this presentation to what appeared to be college students yeah um, and he was he was talking a lot about his own personal uh, path uh, to becoming a chef um, uh, and he talked about becoming a chef being hyper focused on like the fine dining food culture and then when he when he started working in these restaurants realizing that these ingredients that were being served um, had originated with indigenous people and that was inspiring to him as a chef as an indigenous chef to work with these ingredients that came from indigenous people so I, I took it in a completely different way that's right so indigenous to Australia indigenous to China indigenous to Africa or indigenous to because it sounds like where he was at the moment was in the Pacific Northwest or indigenous to, to the York. southeast. What's that? That's in New York is where, where he's giving so, the Okay. Yeah. Or indigenous to he, New York. He mentioned buffalo and salmon <clears throat> specifically as being, like, on those fine dining menus. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought, I mean, I kind of feel like the word indigenous is like, yeah, you know, 100% of the food we eat comes from indigenous cultures because uh, just from all over the world, right? In a way, it kind of does. I think the the whole point of like 70% of the stuff that, that we eat today came from, was developed by indigenous people in the North America, Nor not North America, but the Americas, is a testament to the ingenuity of these people to be able to cultivate all the this, this wide array of, of food over you know, potentially thousands and thousands of years. Right. He specifically mentioned, like, that we associate chocolate with Swiss. Right, Swiss and chocolate. That, yeah. And and he was more interested in, like, what, you know, what is the traditional indigenous use or process or space for this ingredient. Right. So, like, what would the people who were cultivating chocolate in South America hundreds of years ago have done with it? Or how did they use it in their cuisine versus, like, what is, you know, a Swiss chocolatier or something doing with it? Yeah, reconnecting yeah. it to its heritage. Yeah. Um, when it comes to uh, Apache foods, they're saying that Apache foods include... Um, and, and let me know if I've got this, because I was trying to take notes between different things that they said. Right. Corn, beans, and acorns. I think those were at least all on the menu at the the little cafe they were creating, which was meant to kind of recreate Apache food. So I'm going to go right. with, yeah, that sounds true. Yeah, okay. All right. Cool. I, I was trying to discern between what are the things that they're like, you know, non-indigenous to that region. Right. Which was, I, I was kind of thinking like, what an awesome restaurant to be like, yeah. everything we serve here is grown here and is native to this area. Yeah. You I know, that would really cool. be, well, I'm not sure that's what they were doing. No. Right. I didn't, not fully. I mean, I think that was like one of their themes is that they're, trying to reconnect to their local culture they're trying to support the local people who are foraging and growing the food but I don't think that was like a strict rule you know like yep. they'll never 
buy right. butter or something. Well, there's, you know? yeah, I mean, when you get into the fine dining industry, there's a huge amount of pressure to to create things that people like. Um, and that's, you know, that's a lot of times the struggle with um, sort of reimagining a sustainable cuisine is that people are attached to certain ingredients or certain tastes or certain processes that make it difficult to get there. Um, but I'd be curious to know, like, you know, since that, I think that was just their opening night serving stuff, I, I'd be curious to know, like, have they gotten to the point where most of their dishes are from stuff that is adapted to that region or originally from that region? Yeah, native. To that um I think along the lines of, of um, palatable, you know, like native native foods potentially being palatable, the food that they ate 500 years ago, like there's that whole thing with that guy, that native guy I had dinner with, and he was saying, like, apparently he didn't care for camas. I've had camas. I thought it, but, of course, I also had it where it was cooked for a day and a half. Right. <laughs> and it tasted it. great. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. But it's like, yeah, it was like you had to do a lot of work to get these little tiny buds of camas. Right. And uh, I could see, like, potato harvesting potatoes was so much easier. Right. <laughs> and it cooked so much faster. But... Um, I remember seeing a presentation by a Blackfoot gal, and um, she was talking about how 400 years ago, like when they encountered a huckleberry bush, they didn't like the berries at all. They found the berries to be like, they would ignore the berries. They took the leaves, and they took the leaves to make a huckleberry tea, Um, but they would just leave the, and she said that basically the palate of the people at the time was um, geared more towards bitter. Mm. Like somehow they liked bitter. They craved bitter. And they weren't really interested in sweet. Interesting. Yeah. Boy, have times have changed. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people even today have probably experienced their palate changing like... If you go vegan or vegetarian, or if you stop eating sugar or something, and then eat something that you loved three years ago, you're like, this is disgusting. How could anyone ever eat this? How did I do it? What was yeah. wrong with me right. back then? Right, like, did I actually like Dr. Pepper? Like, <laughs> I had that exact thing happen with Mountain Dew. Like, I used to drink it all the time, and then I went back home to visit my folks, and I had a Mountain Dew while I was at home, and I'm like... I don't like the way this tastes. This isn't really as good as I remember. You know, uh, first of all, when I was a kid, Mountain Dew was one of my go-to things, too. Um, But um, I don't think I've had a Mountain Dew for 20 years or better. Uh, But about four years ago, there's a guy I do business with in Missoula a lot, and um, he had this horrible rash all over his face. And I'm like, buddy, what is going on with your face? And he said, I don't know. I've tried everything. I've put every kind of goo on. I've seen dermatologists. And it's like, you know, and it's like, okay, tell me. you got to tell me. I just got to know. What the fuck are you eating? And it turns out he was putting away a lot of Mountain Dew. And I said, you know what? Uh, you know, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> and I want to make a suggestion. Cut the Mountain Dew. See what happens. I mean, cut it for like two weeks. You can live with that for two weeks, right? Just drink. You know, there's this other thing you can get. It's called water. You can just drink some water. 
He did, and it went away like in four days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. After years of trying all kinds of other things, and it just kept getting worse. He uh, he cut out the Mountain Dew, and it went away in four days. Ah, uh, yeah. I, I I think I should be called doctor now. <laughs> I think I, I think, think your podcast needs a legal disclaimer now. <laughs> I am not a doctor. Mountain Dew Corporation. <laughs> what was that? Uh, there used to be a show on NPR called Ask Doctor Science. Remember, he's not a real doctor. <laughs> so. so to get back to the actual podcast, like, in my notes, it, before we move on from, like, the foods, they mention Anasazi beans, okay. which um, they said were, like, found in an archaeological dig from hundreds of years ago, or maybe thousands, I forget what they said, thousands. and thousands of years ago, and then, like, now they're grown, you know, pretty extensively and, like, easily available, which I thought was awesome. Like, my dad used to give me, like, a big bag of Anasazi beans every year when I was in college because he, you know, I was like a starving college student. and But I had no idea they were like resurrected from an archaeological dig. So I thought that was really cool. Which is a really interesting, I thought, thing to think about is like what other species of plants are out there waiting to be restored and reconstituted. All we gotta go do is dig up a bunch of people's graves and when their when their children complain we say, Fuck off, we're looking for beans. So Magic beans Good. motherfucker Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> so we're kinda of talking about um you know what the the palette, the changing of the palette. Um and we're kind of dancing around this this issue of there being a lot of work involved in the foraging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a reason that when corn came along, it was very rapidly adopted because it's such a productive plant. You know, it produces so many calories, produces so much nutrition for people, uh, comparative to the amount of time that you put into harvesting it. Um, and... Uh, the master forager talked about how harvest foraging is a lifestyle. It takes time. You, you know, you're spending your time out there looking for this food. Um, it takes hours. Uh, you know, it, it's a lot of work. Um, and that's something that I think, as we are trying to build, um, you know, trying to trying to build a better world. And that includes new ways of of gardening and and um, not tilling and not growing things in rows. Uh, the amount of work that it takes to harvest that that food increases dramatically. When you go away when you get away from the modern productive varieties of things, you know you're going back to um, grains that produce more stalks. You get more um, more biomass. We go back to um, things that have a longer growth cycle so that they use less water and less fertility. Um, they don't require the, the tilling. Um, it, just, it makes it more work to actually get this food. Um, How much time does it take to harvest food from a grocery store in comparison? I mean, we're, like we're talking about like instead of growing it in rows, we're going to grow it in polycultures and bunches on hugel culture beds and things like that. And it's like, okay, today I'm going to go get potatoes. So then I go outside with my digging fork and I know where the potatoes are and I go out and I hit three 
spots and I bring in enough potatoes for a week. Right. And um, now I could have gone to the grocery store and I need to grab that wild plastic sack and then select which potatoes I want and put them into the little bag. And then I got to go and carry them up to the front counter, pay for them. And then there was also a drive to get there and back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But now I probably picked up like 10 different things while I was doing my grocery store foraging. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is like, yes, the systems that we're trying to create are going to make it so that the harvest takes longer than if it was growing in rows. True. But we're also trying to make it so that what we grow, we we end up establishing a system where the invasive weeds are food plants. You know, we have a bad case of invasive tomatoes. And uh, when we want tomatoes, we've got to go out there and get them. But did it take more time or less time than going to the grocery store? Or even more so, going to a restaurant. Because right. you got to go to a different restaurant three meals a day if you're going to not go to the grocery store at all ever, unless your whole you know, food system is breakfast is crunchy cereal with milk, which i got to admit is a tasty food system. I think, you know, one thing that we've talked about amongst ourselves before is the fact that, like, if you're trying to grow like a diet that mimics what you would grow in like a little row garden or that is commercially grown and available in the grocery store it's harder and weirder to try to grow it as a perennial polyculture like you know if you don't get your garlic and your potatoes before the tops die back you're like wow i miss rose i wonder where my potatoes are and you know it's like gosh i have a lot of mustard plants i don't i don't know about this where my tomatoes on the other hand not so invasive yet but it's like if you shift your diet to where like you're embracing the stuff that's actually growing there and it's then you know that's a different story like if you're going to try to grow like potatoes carrots onions you know and cucumbers or whatever in a perennial polyculture year round year round yeah absolutely <laughs> okay. without irrigation oh, <laughs> oh, low blow low blow, low blow. <laughs> um you know that's that's harder than growing them in rows or buying them from the grocery store but if you're eating like perennial fruit and nut crops and herbaceous plants that want to grow there and yes bitters you know bitter greens there are lots of things that like love growing in polyculture and I don't know. We should just eat those. And right. thus ends my Yeah, there's this quote about um, <laughs> how uh, you have to take on this mentality that is in in relationship with the food, that you're, you're actually, you're a servant to the food in a way, and that it changes you um, as Or much. you have a symbiotic relationship right. with the food that you grow, exactly. which is going to be seasonal. Mm-hmm. Well, and having a relationship with anything is more time and attention than having a no relationship where you just, you know, pay for it. The I, gave, I gave money for this. Yeah. That food does not talk you know, to it, me. It is my bitch. <laughs> you, you, talk, you talk about knowing where the potatoes are in the garden. It's like, that means you have to know where they are. What, <laughs> yeah. is, what does that mean? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. You know, every day of your your daily schedule has to involve knowing where the potatoes are. Yeah. I, I hope that we get to the point where it's like, yeah, and we'll leave some of the, we won't get all, all the potatoes because yeah. we didn't grow them in rows. Mm-hmm. 
and there's a good chance that they're going to come back in that spot next mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be some of that. And I, I hope that we get to the point where <clears throat> our systems are easier than the more commercial systems. Right. Easier on us as well as cheaper. And as an added side bonus, a little frosting on the cake, I hope that the food that we grow cures most ailments. Right. And and so it's like because of denser nutrition and things of that nature, maybe even getting some nutrition back that's been not showing up in these foods for a long time. That just reminds me of a really cool part of the movie that I don't want to miss mentioning, which Scott is nodding. Do you want yeah. to tell it, Scott? Oh, please let me. Um, <laughs> so there was a point in the movie, it was with the forager lady. She was teaching uh, the little girl that she took with her. Uh, they were catching rats. Uh, and that obviously rats don't sound particularly appetizing to most people when you bring them up, but um, she made worse by the way she cooked them. Yeah, <laughs> it did not look good, but everyone was attesting that it tasted just like chicken. So fun fact. But the they point even tried to say, you know, I want to tell you what it tastes like without saying it tastes like chicken, but I'm sorry, there's nothing left that tastes like chicken. <laughs> yeah, but she made this excellent point that was just like I. I heard this concept but hearing her say I don't know just made my mind explode where she's talking about how um, in that area she saw there were these certain medicinal plants um, that people can't really eat because we can't get the medicine out of it it just either is bad for us in the form that it's in or, or however but the fact that they were eating the animals that were in that area means they ate on those plants and therefore they were able to store some of that medicine in their basically in their meat and so and it was in a form that our bodies could actually process so we could get medicine through the food that we're eating so a, a bit more um, literal in food as medicine? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, so... <clears throat> um, you are what your pack rat ate. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah, did they say pack rat? Yeah. I mean, rat it was definitely rat. a rat. Uh, it's just like those... So we have wood rats, which look very different. And sometimes people say that they are, they are a pack rat. But our wood rats are, I mean, f- compared to what they got, what they were eating there, what they had caught, our wood rats are beautiful. Right. <laughs> ours are going to win the beauty contest. Um, I thought it was really cool, too, in that uh, little episode. She mentioned, like, that the the pack rats or whatever kind of pack, whatever kind of rat they are, live in, like, a 25-foot radius, basically, of, you know, of their central location. Which is this plant. Which is this plant. So she's, like, looking at the plants within that particular area. And it's just, I think that's a really interesting concept for, like, hunting and foraging in general, because it's like, we're often eating things that like I mean like back home in Texas everybody feeds GMO corn to the deer to get them to come so that you can shoot them and it's like I don't know how great I feel about right. those deer. And so yeah. there's just, like, looking at, or, like, honeybees, how yeah. far afield are they going? So, like, knowing the the foraging radius of the animal that you're foraging is really useful um, to see, like, what's within their, you know, their dietary, their food shed. I mean, it yeah. seems like those rats, whatever they were eating, 
it was probably no GMOs. There was it was probably all natural. Oh yeah, totally. Because totally. they were so far away from everything society, I guess, from civilization, right. let's say. But if she had like shot, I don't know, a deer or something, it might have been making it to the roadside and eating all kinds right. of creepy, well, you know, know lead-filled plants or something. In Washington, um, hunting culture is very much like, oh, you go to the clear cut. <laughs> and you sit at the edge of the clear cut because the deer love to come and munch on the undergrowth. Mm. And the thing about clear cuts is that the, the dominant practice, at least in that area of Washington, is to do helicopter applications of herbicide so that you can go in and do the replanting. And so it's like that those deer are consuming a lot of glyphosate. And other toxic oh, yeah. gigs. Yeah. 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 So... Um, I have one last note. Right. And um, uh, as part of it, uh, they had a a gal that was, like, doing her science project for high school. And and I don't know. I'm kind of like, why did they pick this gal? I don't understand. And then... And then... Uh, she she would give her elevator speech to the judges, and it's like, oh shit, she's doing some serious science. That is really cool. Yeah. And then and then it's like it got to the end, and they're about to announce who won the science fair, and I'm like finding myself rooting for her. Come on, come <laughs> on. And she did. She won. Uh, there, spoiler alert. She totally won. It was awesome. I was so happy that she won. <laughs> Yeah, I had to walk out. It was a little too, a little too sappy for me. A little too. Oh, yeah, was too much. I thought you just had to go pee or something. You're like such a sappy person. It's weird that you hate the schmaltzy movies and stuff. I don't understand. No, it was great. She deserved it. Yeah. No, it, it was pretty cool, especially like the fact that she was showing how when these um, animals are living in their natural way in their proper environment, not being um, factory farmed or being kept in a you know a That's concrete paper. a concrete pen walking through their own feces and being fed some mush that is usually corn that the amount of beneficial healthy fats like in the meat were so much higher and the the negative fats in the meat were so much lower. Yep. Um, I actually had a conversation a few days about someone who was basically. You know, talking smack on meat. And I like to eat meat, so I I've decided to try and educate them a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, I don't think meat's a problem, but I think it's how we're raising the meat. It's like, what's eating? What's the meat eating? See, now that was part of she was she was showing, and I and you put it correctly. If 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 they're being raised the way that they lived here 500 years ago, then uh, the nutrition of the meat is vastly superior to the nutrition of the meat of cattle that are being raised conventionally. I kind of wish they could have done cattle that were being raised in a paddock ship system, you know, and and see how that compared. They did grass-fed cattle, but not paddock shift. Yeah. They had both conventionally raised and grass-fed cattle. In in her test, Mm -hmm. I only remember her talking about um, the uh, bison, the Mm -hmm. buffalo, that are, are, you know, 
truly and truly open pasture. Right. You know, moving around as a herd. And I don't know if it said this, but did did they say that like if the bison were superior to the even the grass fed? Yes, that yeah. that was her conclusion. She did conventional and grass fed cattle and conventional and grass fed bison. The conventional cattle were the worst. The grass fed bison were the best. She didn't say whether conventional bison or grass-fed cattle were better. Okay. Um, I'm, yeah. I mean, I, okay. I would like to see the numbers and all that stuff, and I'm, I was getting, it's like, this is good stuff. This is just, why can't we get another 20 minutes on this? (laughs) Yeah. You know, and and it's like, uh, but, um, the big thing that really, really, really caught me was buffalo don't get sick. Right. And I kind of thought, there's a lot, I have a lot to say about that. And I think everybody listening to this podcast, you know, already knows what would be said. So I don't need to go into a lot of it. But I just kind of thought that is a bold statement to make. And it never occurred to me that it's like, yeah, we just never gave them all those weird shots and shit. And so, you know, they never... They've kind of got a natural... They're doing their own breeding program. Right. Kind of a thing. Well, and she specifically mentioned that, like, because they're in that environment, like, they know where medicinal plants are. Yeah. And they'll go eat the medicinal plants out of the polyculture if they need them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, too. Yeah. Did you have something to say? Did we steal all your thunder? Uh, no, no. I, uh... Let's see. I think... You said, why can't we get 20 more minutes on on yeah. these studies? And it's probably because the studies haven't happened yet. Um, and so, you know, it's just kind of like a state of state of the world. It's like, we haven't... We need to do that. We, we, you know, <laughs> we, need, we need more about that. We need 20 more minutes in a movie about that. But we have to make... You know, we have to do the thing before we can make the movie about it. Right. Um, I had... You know, if, if you guys are done with that point... I, I've, I'm all done. Those are all my notes. Okay. Um, I... I thought it was a really great movie. A um, couple of the things that we missed in our conversation that I have in my notes um, is how a lot of the work that these folks were doing um, had to do with recreating economy around the native food and traditions because mm-hmm. they have to exist in society as it is today. Mm-hmm. And so that's a lot, you know, it's not like they can go back. You have to reach back and pull what was behind you forward and recreate it into this new way of life where you have to generate an income, you know, have money, and um, and still be able to pass these traditions on to your children. Um, and, uh, and another thing was um, was just thinking about how uh, sometimes we talk about how permaculture is kind of um, you know it needed to. Bill Mollison coined the term with David Holmgren, and then it needed to, you know, it needed to explode and spread rapidly, kind of like an R-selected species reproductive strategy. And and now that it's spread a whole bunch, and that's that's still important, but we need more K strategy. We need more um, long-term investment into producing these the actual systems. You know, the mm-hmm. taking taking the philosophy and um, taking the techniques that have been pioneered and and building actually building the world um, that we want to live in. Um, and that just the whole movie what w- paralleled that a lot. Um, and they, you know, there was this quote about how it's like, man, we were only talking about 
how cool it would be to do these things that we're now doing, and it's only five to seven years later. Um, and just how much can change within a person's life if you endeavor to actually do it. You know, it take you know, it might take ten years, it might take twenty years, it might only take five to seven years, but you can really, you can make a whole lot of progress. Um, I I thought it was really encouraging. Um, that just reminds me of one thing from my notes that I wanted to mention is there's this scene where like. Um, I think it's the Uruk tribe, but I'm not sure. They're, but a lot of the young guys who are kind of like they're trying to recreate a lot of these life ways are talking to one of the elders, and he's kind of saying, he says like, okay, so you wake up and nothing's going on. Well, then you do something, you know? And he lists like a number of things that they could do, like traditional crafts and practices. But I... I just appreciated that that was his, like, philosophy of preserving their culture is, like, it's on you, buddy. Like, you got to wake up and you got to just start doing something and not waiting around for, like, something to happen in order to get it started. Mm-hmm. I thought that was cool. <clears throat> Anybody else say more? Yes? You're saying yes. No. 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 Yeah, we're, it, yeah. we're good? good. Yeah. We're all done? All done. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com. Oh, I do have one more thing. <laughs> where we have one more thing. <laughs> one more thing. So this and this, I, the only reason I bring it up, the only reason I cut you off is because it's totally important and relevant to what we're doing here. Um, they're starting this restaurant, Cafe, I can't remember how to pronounce it, Guzo. Um... And he talks about how, man, we're doing this really tiny thing. You know, these, you can see him struggling throughout the movie to to start this cafe. They're doing it. It's like difficult thing. It's gonna, you, you know, it costs a lot of money to do their project. And uh, and he's like, oh, it's a really small thing. It's a really huge thing. It's really difficult. But in the grand scheme of things, it's a really small thing. And on top of that, it is 100% outlandish to our community. Oh yeah. What we are doing here, trying to restore this native food tradition, for you know, restore the the importance of these native foods and and try to heal each other. It's totally outlandish. Um, like the local community thinks it's shit. Yeah, the, like every you know, this is on the reservation. Yeah. And um, but we have to do it. We have to do it for the sake of our people, for the sake of our culture. Like if we can open this up, and we can serve native food. Um, and and if we can just fill half the tables every night for five years, eventually those negative Nellies will give it a try. Right. I mean, you get the feeling like, or at least my assumption is like, yeah, there's this community of people, and like he's got people who are interested, but like a lot of those people are like, man, I love those donuts from the convenience store. I eat twelve of them every day, mm. and then like your acorn soup, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's got donuts in it. <laughs> right. That's all I eat. And so he's just like, yeah. I mean, not only is he struggling to to pull this off, but it's like even the people he's doing it for are like, it doesn't sound like he's got a hundred percent buy-in. Yeah. But he still thinks it's important enough to like to keep trying. Yeah. Forgers. Forgers. Yeah. Ahead. I think that for the stuff that we do, I mean, look at. We, I was talking earlier about rocket mass heaters. So we put out the thing about rocket mass heaters. They're way better, but it's like people 
just need to hate on it or something. They just need to 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 say. I mean, we at no point in time do we ever say it's any more than 100% efficient. But it's like these fucking liars keep saying it's 750% efficient. And it's like, nope. At no point in time did we ever say that. <laughs> we do say that you heat your home with one tenth the wood, right. but that's a whole different beastie than saying that it's. You know, 750% efficient. So, I I don't know. I kind of feel like, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna create that restaurant in an effort to try to grab back some of the culture, and a few people get it, and others are gonna hate it. Are they gonna hate it to the point that they might try to burn it down? I you know, I or do something like some sort of vandalism. Um, but it's weird how one of the steps to change is that you have to be thoroughly hated. And uh and it's like, yeah, you've got your allies and it's like for every ally you got like twenty people who fucking hate your guts for trying really for saying it it's like look i'm doing my own thing in my own place and it's like then you must die for that <laughs> it's kind of like it's amazing how how much pushback there's so it is sad to hear that that's happening and yet i i can relate I did like the one clip, though, where there's this old native guy, and he's eating, I believe the it's the acorn soup, and he looks like he kind of wishes it were a donut. <laughs> and then he, like, takes a bite of it kind of reluctantly, and then he just says, like, hey, this is pretty good. And he's, like, excited about it. So, yeah, you know. His, his vocabulary, dipping yeah. deep into that thesaurus, it's good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the taste is good. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, maybe they're making some headway. <laughs> I, I, you're right, because that yeah. guy did look like he's fresh from the donut shop, yeah. and and he's being inconvenienced to be here instead of at the bar. <laughs> right, like you know, get the impression the, that like, a family member dragged him. Is, is <laughs> like you have to go to this, and he's like, no, I don't, and you can just see this whole argument happening. And next thing you know, he's there anyway, because some some sort of deal was struck, <laughs> and so he's going to be on his best behavior to honor his end of the deal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to repeat something as we're kind of drawn to a close of the sentiment that was expressed is like how much change can happen in one lifetime because you know it made me when I heard it, it made me think of like within a generation most of human society went from horse and buggy subsistence farmers to electricity automobiles flying machines in plastic pl- well, mm-hmm. let's yeah. let's not yeah. talk about that one. <laughs> um, He's trying to look for good stuff. Yeah, the good stuff. And and there was amazing change that happened in a generation. And like to whoever's listening to this, like there is something that you can do to affect that kind of change. I think I think the big thing that we do we can do, which and everybody listening to the podcast can do, is to try and when it works, take a picture and share it. And the bizarre thing is, is now we live in the era of the Internet. And granted, you'll post your picture and maybe only seven people will look at it. But you leave it up and maybe in time 70,000 will look at it. And um, but, you know, try. And uh, um, I think that's everything that we're doing. It's all about try. And uh, we're, you know, 
getting better and all the time, I think. I mean, I I know I remember looking at this property the first day, <clears throat> the first time I'd ever laid eyes on it, and uh, how different, how dramatically different it is now from try and, uh, you know, and the list of things that we want to continue to try. But, yeah, small victories. I mean, I think that we do have, it's great, oh, it's so beautiful that we have people who have tried before and we can look at their work mm-hmm. and be like, oh, yeah, give me give me 150 pounds of that. Yeah. And so, um, and then I want to go far beyond what that person did. Mm-hmm. And so I think... Uh, that's that's really the recipe at this point is to is to demonstrate, and I think I've heard of five thousand different people that are like I'm gonna start a permaculture farm, It'll be a demonstration farm, yeah. So it's like awesome. I'm looking forward to all of those. I think only a few have gotten to the finish line, <laughs> but um, and then once they do get to the finish line, then there's a greater finish line to keep going for. Right. I like to think that. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, almost anybody who tried to share any information about permaculture would get shouted down and, and would get a lot of ugly thrown their way for their, for their amazing accomplishments. And I kind of feel like uh, we have 1.8 million people per month coming to permies.com, and we have strict policies about how that kind of hate is not allowed. And so I think that a lot of people that would have been shouted down before now have a safe haven to share and um, and it grows and and we can infect more brains and move permaculture forward. I think that was 10, 15 years ago, that was the greatest impediment. Like, why isn't permaculture a household word? And I think the number one reason was hostile permies that were like, if you don't do it the way I say, it isn't permaculture and you have to shut the fuck up. And we've gotten rid of that. So... <clears throat> Most of the places where I used to go to, and I, w- I would get shouted down. You know, I'm trying to talk about polyculture, and I get shouted down. If you're not using Roundup, you're not farming. Well, A, I'm not trying to farm. I'm trying to garden. <laughs> you know, but it doesn't matter. They don't, you know, they... If, if everything to them is about the herbicides. And in other places, it's like, you know, you're an American, so you're a dumb fuck. Only Australians know permaculture. Only. Nobody else. No Americans. Definitely not Americans. So I kind of feel like the places where I was shouted down in the past have, for the most part, all dried up. They're not there anymore. There's been a shift, a serious shift. I've I've been talking with strangers online about, <laughs> about, about permaculture. Oh, um, good. Oh, okay. Um, I thought this was going in a different direction. And in almost every single instance, they are amazed and fascinated and want to know more and there is definitely a hunger out there for this information so don't be afraid to talk about it talk about it be that annoying guy and talk about it anything else that's it i mean really no seriously Okay, if you like this sort of thing, I'm looking at Josiah. If you like this sort of thing, (laughs) come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about 
homesteading. Well, no, there's you've got to say the other thing. You're, okay, fine. <laughs> so, native, native tradition. Ooh, good one. <laughs> now, now. Homesteading and permaculture all, all the time. time. <laughs> Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.